everyone. Welcome back to another episode of TPA Tidbits, a Sentinel Pension podcast. My name is Melissa Torito, and I'm your host for this podcast. And today we have a, another guest, Lloyd Johnson. Hello. He's making his podcast debut. Podcast debut. Uh, Lloyd, aren't you a fan of Louisiana Ladies Podcast? I am a huge fan of Louisiana Ladies Podcast. It is on my Spotify homepage as one of the shows I listen to. <laughs> All right, so Lloyd, really quick for our audience, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where um, are you from? I am from Prairieville, Louisiana. Um, oh. Be a lot of state, I say Baton Rouge, but Baton Rouge people sometimes uh, make a face if I say Prairieville. Um, yeah, I work at Falk and Winkler. I'm a partner in the audit department. Been here for Six years, had a year leave sabbatical, mm-hmm. uh, came came back um, this past May, and yeah, love love working here. Yeah, so we're really excited to have Lloyd back. He didn't take a sabbatical. He went and worked somewhere else, but a, a year sabbatical does sound pretty fabulous. Can we work that into our partner operating agreement or something? You know, I think that that would be very... Very nice. So um, one of the reasons why I wanted to have Lloyd on today is we've talked before on 5,500 errors. I did a podcast previously on just the common audit findings for the Department of Labor and the IRS. But Lloyd actually audits 401k plans. Um, and just so that everybody understands how this works, if we are the third-party administrator on a retirement plan, our firm cannot audit the plan because we cannot audit our own work. Correct. Is that right, Lloyd? Yes. Uh, independence um, issues come into play. Even though we are two different departments um, and we don't really work directly with each other, the perception would be, you know, we are we are not independent with Sentinel from right. a Falcon Winkler standpoint. And we do not need to cause any raise any flags correct when it comes yeah. to the 401k world okay so uh, what I wanted to talk about today is um, we are seeing actually more and more clients um, believe it or not go over the threshold of the participant count to need an audit and to refresh everyone's memory if you start a plan the actual threshold is a hundred participants as of the big be- over a hundred participants as of the beginning of the year and a participant is not just anyone actively participating in the plan it is anybody eligible to participate and um, that also includes any terminated employees with a balance. Beneficiaries are in there too, but they don't normally take up a big, um, they don't take up a lot in the participant count. Uh, If you are, so that means you are a large filer. And so if you start as a large filer, it's difficult to become not a large filer unless you have a mega drop off in your um, staffing. But if you start as a small filer, so less than 100 participants as of the beginning of the year, then instead of 100 as your threshold, it's hundred and over 120. So we're seeing a lot of clients creep up over that 120 um, and even some startup plans that I get to tell them, hey, you have a lot of people and you want to start this plan and you're going to need an audit. So that being said, I do feel like most people, especially HR professionals and office managers, get a little freaked out when they hear the word audit for any reason. Yes, audit usually doesn't have a positive connotation associated with the word. Um, audits usually, you think of people coming in, digging through files, rummaging around, asking questions that nobody wants to answer. But um, the the purpose of an audit is, is supposed to protect all the, the members of the plan, um, looking out after them, um, what the DOL wants us to look at. So when we do an audit... We really look at the plan document. Mm-hmm. That's what really drives, you know, what we do. 
Um, there's two aspects to the audit. You have the compliance side, so that's compliance with the plan document, and then the reporting side, making sure what's reported on the 5500 is accurate. So the first thing we do is look at, again, the plan document, see how many participants are in there, um, see who's eligible to enter the plan. So we'll look at you know, the eligibility requirements, see you know, what those are, look at certain people who are eligible through sampling. Um, not going to get too involved into what sampling is, but essentially we determine based on the amount of eligible participants who can be in the plan, um, see if, if they were eligible and should be entered into the plan that they actually were. Um, another stuff that we look at are distributions. So I know in 2020 with COVID, there were a lot of, um, you know, new rules allowed for distributions to be had. Um, Is that changing y'all's process for that? Yes, it adds a little, um, a new wrinkle in the mix. So when you have more distributions, um, it obviously has more, more activity. More activity means more stuff for us to look at. So, um, you know, with the plan document, how distributions were previously determined, now we have the new um, items for, for COVID and, you know, that expands our scope a bit. Um, another thing that we look at are the investments. So um, most of the investments that are held with the trustee, um, they are certified. Um, so I'm not going to get too involved in that. But what we do look at are the investments that are with the plan, what those earnings are on the plan. Are they reasonable? Are they in line with, with what we expect? We want to make sure that participants who have account balances, what they're earning and is what they're entitled to and, and what's getting credited to their account. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, we're going to go back to all three of those really quick. We're okay. going to get a little in detail. So the first you said the plan document, which I mean, I think I say that all the time to our clients about following the plan document. I find that that is a, um, a document that people maybe know about 15% of what's in their document, but it is very confusing. That's why we are hired. Uh, but when it comes to that first sample that you were talking about, I'm assuming what you're looking at is you're, you're taking the population that, is it all the employees or only employees that would be considered eligible in the plan? That would, so typically for people who are eligible in the plan, you look at, you get a, a census data, so individuals of the company um, typically will look at people who contribute into the plan as well. So, A, people who are contributing, are they allowed to be, are they supposed to be contributing to the plan? Mm -hmm. you know, did they meet the eligibility requirements? Mm -hmm. um, we also will look at individuals who, based on hire dates, new hires, um, you know, wind if they're hired on January 2nd and it's a six month uh, until they're eligible, you know, did they sign uh, a waiver to not join the plan? Or if they were supposed to enter the plan that day, did they, were the contributions made on time that, you know, that's outlined in the plan document and stuff like that? Yeah. I say this all the time. You got to make sure that you follow that plan document with eligibility. Do you find a lot of errors for that? Not really. Um, you don't really find too many issues as far as, at least from, from my experience, um, as far as people incorrectly being added to the plan or not. Usually it's, um, if they, it's when they have changes to the plan document mid-year mm -hmm. and then you have a hire who's just right on that threshold and, you know, maybe it was, they were supposed to be, you know, 21 and a year of service and 
now it's 18 and six months of service. And this individual was in between 18 and 21 and they're in between that six month and a year. And I've missed a few, I've seen a few of those, but typically it's nothing major, um, you know, as far as correcting it. Um, but that's, it's really when, when there's changes is when usually stuff kind of gets lost in the cracks. Well, and I do feel that sometimes the changes are made on, and they're made by the trustees of the plan who aren't necessarily the ones that are actually operating the plan on a day-to-day basis. So there's a mm-hmm. little bit of lack of communication between those parties internally. Mm-hmm. Okay. So distributions, what are you guys looking for? Um, so say you're, you're with Transamerica. We usually get a summary of the plan transactions during the year. You know, where do we start at one one twenty? Where did we end? What were the contributions? What were the distributions? What were the earnings? Mm-hmm. Um, so you have all these segments that go on during the year. Um, distributions is one part of those segments is, is how I look at it. So we have everything that was distributed in the plan during the year. So was it due to a death? Was it due to a hardship? Um, benefits paid? Yeah, termination. Terminations. Um, so for distributions, we'll select a sample. So that's multiple things determine that sample size. With those distributions, we'll look at the actual request. Um, what was it for? We'll look at the um, 1099-R um, and make sure the proper tax withholdings and all of that uh, is properly accounted for there. Um, and then if there are eligible to for the distributions, um, stuff like that. Have you ever run into a situation where somebody took a distribution and they shouldn't have? I have not. I have not seen that. Okay. Typically, I don't really run into too many issues with distributions. Usually, it's it's mainly getting the documentation that we're looking for yeah. from the record keeper. Um, and it's just tracking down the documents more so than trying to rectify an error. It's just getting the stuff we need. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever actually seen a distribution that hasn't been processed right. I have seen where people have taken too much money because mm-hmm. their vesting's wrong. Yeah, so correct. So it, one situation would be if they took a loan out and the loan can't be more than 50% of the balance. Right. It's, it's ensuring that, okay, this individual at the date of the loan, their balance was 90000 and, you know, it couldn't be more than 50% and they took out 50000 Right. You know, that would obviously be an issue. Um, so what we try to do... When we're testing those things, we'll look at the uh, participant's balance at date of the loan um, and what was vested and, and what that ratio is of the loan. So I haven't really seen too many issues with that. But again, when COVID happens and you have more activity um, and then if there is a temporary change to the plan, um, that's when errors could be found. Yeah. So we've seen where um, the we've gotten incorrect census data. So we've gotten, you know, hours at the end of the year. And so the person looks like they're 80% vested and they're really 40% vested and a distribution is processed and that money goes out the door. And so fun fact for everyone, if the participant receives too much money, the money has to be put back into the plan by either the participant Haha, yeah. or the employer. It has to go back into the plan. Why there's that rule that it has to go back in the plan, I guess, because technically it should have been forfeited and then that should be reallocated to participant accounts. But um, in the that that's happened in several instances and it's all it's typically due to bad data or we're, we take over a plan and the contributions are going into a 100% vested source at the record keeper and it's like, eh, nope, that's a vesting schedule. I have seen one very honest person write a check back to the plan in all my years. It's incredible. I would have never guessed. Yes. He was an engineer. (laughs) They're pretty compliant. Okay. So 
on the investment piece, and I feel like that gets really granular and detailed, but I do believe that because most of these custodians or record keepers certify the investments, that allows you guys to do a limited scope audit. Correct. So limited scope audits, we are not really digging in extremely deep into the details of the investments. Um, what we're really doing with the limited scope audit will, you know, sometimes send confirmations out to participants of the plan. Hey, this is what we're showing as your elected um, investment funds. Is this match with your records? Um, you know, sometimes people change um, funds during the year. Mm-hmm. Want to make sure those are all captured and, and accurate with what they have on their records. Um, again, with that, we'll do some sort of high-level analytic is what I'd like to call it of investment earnings. Mm-hmm. So most of these funds you can look up on Yahoo Finance and get an idea of the earnings by quarter. Um, so we'll try to look at their investment balances throughout the year uh, if they made changes to the funds and then project out estimated earnings and make sure they're in line. Um, typically, How would they not be in line? All of these are kept at some custodian. Yeah, you would think so. Uh, I think mainly what would cause that is someone switching a fund or uh, an investment election and it not getting processed. So if someone switched an investment, uh, an election, and then they did a, a huge rollover, and that rollover was supposed to go maybe in March and it somehow got mixed up and it wasn't until April 15, depending on the fund that it was in, you know, the stock market these days is absolutely volatile. So that could trigger, um, you know, depending on the dollar amount, you know, some earnings being lost or gained. Yeah, <laughs> gotcha. Okay, results. that makes sense. So more of the processing of some of those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, okay, we actually did run into an issue with a custodian, and they do 401k plans, but they don't certify the investments. So we had to do, the auditor had to do a full scope audit. Yeah. What's the price difference between a limited scope and a full scope audit? Full disclosure, I haven't done a full scope uh, 401k audit. I think the my first thoughts on a full scope investment audit, we would be getting very, very in the detail on um, you know all the not all the participants, but I would I would imagine it would involve some sort of what are the participants, what are their fund elections recalculating actual earnings, confirming investment balances as of certain dates because investments they earn throughout the year. When we have certified investments, we're not sending confirmations out to financial institutions saying, yes, this is the fund value as of this date. Um, That saves us a lot of time Mm -hmm. in in doing that. I would imagine you'd have to confirm investment balances, recalculate earnings in a much more granular detail, um, track the ins and outs. So if I was a participant and I'm switching funds every quarter because I'm very hands-on um, confirming those balances as of the date they're switched that it was properly rolled over. It's That sounds horrible. Yeah. I. That sounds um, like the most tedious task ever. Yes. That's why I, I would never be an auditor. And I, I could be wrong and it, it may not it go right. that granular, but I would, I'd imagine it would involve that level of, uh, well, I could see it getting granular because on these investments that are certified, you guys are relying on that certification to Mm -hmm. issue your disclaimer of opinion, which is not an opinion. 
Correct. But you have to have it. Yeah, if anyone reads it, it's kind of it's like we did not audit this and this. And it always confused me whenever I was went back to school, and when you did issue an opinion, a qualified opinion, if I remember, is like the bad opinion. Yeah. So um, uh, well, that's backwards to me. Qualified yeah. sounds good. You would think so. Okay. Yeah, I know. Unqualified or unmodified, you'll see it's uh, listed that way, is the best opinion you can get. Um, disclaimer would be, you know, we don't put an opinion on it at all, which is what the limited scope brings in with these 401k audits. But yeah, it's uh, qualified. It's not, not good. Yeah. Right. Lainey, doesn't that sound weird? I'm just saying. Just common sense. If common sense are to prevail, it just sounds very odd. Okay. So... I do get this question as, as TPA, we, we try to do as much of the, and we have about 35 plans that have an audit. So we try to, we don't try, we do send the auditor a whole bunch of information on the front end. And, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword because our clients really do rely on us a lot, but they rely on us so much that they'll be like, Hey, Melissa, do you have minutes for this meeting that we had internally that you weren't at? And I'm like, well, nope. <laughs> so do you guys ask for that though? I feel like that one comes up a lot. Like people kind of freak out when the auditor's mm-hmm. like, where are your minutes and where's your documentation or your board resolution? And everybody's like, um, let me go put that together for you. Really yeah. Quick. So it's, you know, the governance of, of, the plan, the, you know, whether it's under the investment committee or, or it's its own committee for the 401k plan, um, it just shows that yes, governance is involved in the plan. They're looking at after their participants. Um, it is, you know, fiduciary responsibility. So they need to be, you know, aware of what's going on with the plan, especially if there's changes to the plan. Yep that, um, you know, everybody's on the same page and, and, and knows what's going on. So I would be inclined to believe, and I've seen this happen before, even if you're not large enough to have an independent audit, if your plan's audited by the Department of Labor and the IRS, I think both of them are going to ask for some sort of meeting mm-hmm. minutes, right? Yes. So, okay, so whenever you go into audit plans, do people talk about you? Like, are they like, the auditor's here? Um. <laughs> I think they usually, I have us, they usually have us in a closet in the back of the office with the AC turned uh, down to like yeah. 60. Freeze okay. it, try to freeze us out. <laughs> so I don't really hear what's going on, but uh, I don't think too many people are excited to have auditors on site, whether that's a 401k audit or just a financial statement audit. Um, but at Falcon Weekly, I'd like to think we're pretty pretty nice and approachable people. So um, we definitely have good relationships with our clients. Uh, but I'm sure some people rather not have an audit. So, Well, I've actually had a couple of clients comment to me that they're glad that their 401k plan has an audit because it gives them like an extra sense of security that, yeah, they might not do everything right, but they would rather you guys come in, tell them what they did wrong. And I know that, you know, I'm simplifying this, but some of that gets issued in the audit report. Um, but we come into play a lot of times with the auditors is that I found you guys will issue, you know, hey, this is what we found, but maybe not necessarily tell them how to correct it. Well, it just depends on the nature of the the finding. The findings, yeah. So one thing we look at is timely remittances. So that's a big one. Yeah, they say uh, I forget the exact verbiage, but it's something along the lines of uh, contributions to the plan are made timely and consistent. Yes, and that timeliness isn't as soon as they can be reasonably segregated from the assets. Exactly. And there is no exact Mm-mm. time frame. So if we see that typically the contributions are made three days, you know, and then there's a, a one at seven days, even though to some another plan, maybe seven days is reasonably feasible. So 
yes, if, if we see some contributions being late, we'll notify you. But. So let me ask you about that. This reasonably feasible. Like, yeah. I don't understand how it could be more than a day. Yeah. Because it, I mean, I guess if your payroll company holds it back and it takes a while to hit some account. I mean, it just seems like nowadays everything's electronic. Nobody's actually writing a check. Right. I would, I would tend to agree with you there. Um, but there's different contexts and situations involved in HR and and payroll and and processing. So, um, if we do see it seven days, we're going to ask and, you know, what's going on? Why is it taking so long? Should this really be, should it be closer to three, maybe four? Um, and just getting an understanding and, and assessing that it is reasonable if we think it's possibly something could be done faster and we can provide a solution, you know, we'd certainly do that. So why are timely remittances so important? And why is that like the number one thing that I feel like the IRS and the Department of Labor looks for? From my understanding and and what I take from it is, you know, those contributions are, that's the participant's money. And it needs to be into the plan as soon as possible. It doesn't need to be sitting in any accounts in the company, Uh, the sponsor's bank accounts, Mm -hmm. um, you know, perhaps they'll with withhold money from participants' paychecks and it's sitting in an interest-bearing account and the company's making interest on it because mm-hmm. they're, they're remitting it later. Um, and on the other side, too, that money could be in participants' accounts earning money. Um, so, yes, I maybe two days isn't going to make that big of a difference in earnings, but it doesn't really matter the dollar amount because it's that's the participants' earnings. Yep. They work for that money. That's their earnings. It's it needs to be in their account as soon as as soon as it's possible. Withholding employees' funds for whatever reason and keeping them in a bank account is not a good way to subsidize your business. Yes. I uh, heard an attorney tell this to a client one time and then she was like, Ugh, you know, but and the Department of Labor and IRS, they do not mm-hmm. they do not take that lightly. It's not the company's money to, mm-hmm. to be um, holding on to. I, I I take that stance as well, you know, let's get it in their accounts as, as soon as we can. Um, because at the end of the day that's that's what they've worked for. It's just like not paying them what they should be paid. Exactly. That's the, that's the equivalent of that. You know, so mm-hmm. I think sometimes people, we, we've got a lot of compliant clients, but I think sometimes they, sometimes people just forget or the HR mm-hmm. person goes on vacation and that kind of throws a monkey wrench in it. So anyway, anything else, Lloyd, that you'd like to add in about fun 401k audits? Man, when we talk about this, I'm glad I'm not an auditor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, let's, I know we have a deadline coming up here in a couple of weeks yes. and then... Um, we have some clients that, you know, will extend to uh, October 15th. Yes. So we try to get them in as, as early as we can and, and with the client schedule. So but, About how long does it take? Are y'all on site for a couple of days and field work? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I call it field work. Um, some We can do work virtually these days as well. Um, last year in doing 2019 plan audits in 2020, um, a lot of the audits that, that we were doing were virtual. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was a new challenge, but I think it opened up new possibilities as far as how a 401k audit looks. Um, if certain clients are, are more open to a full virtual audit, we can certainly, you know, cater to those needs. Um, but as far as a timeline for an audit goes, typically we like to get access, um, to get information, make selections. I would say a full complete turnaround from the first day we, um, start getting data to make selections to finalizing the report to be sent with the 5,500. Um, I would say probably six weeks is a good number. That's pretty, I feel like that's pretty fast. Um, that's, that's no issues, pretty clean, no changes to the plan document. 
Um, nothing unusual or crazy, but, you know, there's always something going on. Um, but yeah, six weeks is, is, I would say, a good turnaround time. Um, shouldn't take more than two months, eight weeks. And all these audits go through two partner reviews? Yes. Yeah, so over here, we usually have staff and then seniors um, kind of running the day-to-day mm-hmm. um, and doing on-site or active field work supervision. Um, that can then, depending, can go to a manager, um, which at our firm, that's a, a licensed individual. Um, and then it would go to the partner who's assigned to the engagement, and then we'll have a cold partner review. So that is just a secondary review that's really focused on the report itself, financial reporting. Um, That second review isn't really going to go into our active work paper file, but it it goes through about three detailed reviews um, before before it gets to a cold review. So the cold review is this partner hasn't looked at this until it gets on the desk. Correct. They are not associated with the audit at all. It's um, a fresh set of eyes. You looking at it, asking questions just from a, you know, a high level standpoint of what's going on. Have we considered certain things? Hey, I didn't see this. Did you consider this? Or what does this mean? Um, just gives us another chance for, for someone to, to ask, you know, good questions and make sure we have all our bases covered. Is that required or is that an, a firm um, policy? The, there needs to be a secondary review. Now, the quality control documents of firms will vary, um, but at our firm policy, it we, for audits, reviews, um, and AEPs, I believe, uh, will need a secondary partner review, comps and preparation engagements, which lower scope engagements. Um, we only require one partner review, uh, but that varies based on individual firms' own quality control standards. Okay. I didn't know that. been working here for 12 years, but I'm also not an auditor and never will be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Lloyd, thank you. That was very informative. Um, Per usual, my contact information is up on our website. You can just Google um, Sentinel Pension Baton Rouge and it should pop up. Falkenwinkler should also pop up. You know, we've been around for 35 plus years and you can get um, Lloyd's contact information as well because... I think you are spearheading our 401k audits, right? Yes, I am. I am on the 401k audits. We do have Scott Lazarin, who is briefly involved. He is. We're working on a transition there, and uh, yeah, we have a good team here at at Falk and Winkler. So if you ever need any 401k auditing needs or questions, you can reach out to us or Melissa. As long as we're not your TPA. As long as you're not your TPA, <laughs> but we can still, if you have questions relating to an audit, we can provide some insight. We can answer this. All right. Thank you so much, Lloyd, for your time. Thank you all for having me. All right.